As we move through our sermon series on Genesis 4 to 12, our two fundamental assumptions about these early chapters of Genesis that we're exploring together is first that these chapters are in fact giving us the true history, the real history, the real story of humanity and the world. And second, that everything in these chapters is particularly significant because all of the rest of what the scriptures will unfold are first revealed here in these first chapters of the Bible, though in seed form. With that in mind, as we've considered over the past three Sundays what Genesis 4 has to teach us about sexuality and about childbirth, about our work in this world, about what it means to offer our labors um, to God as a tithe and offering. We've also considered the fundamental importance of realizing that we live under God's just sentence of death, and so therefore we must offer a sacrificial substitute to prepare the way for salvation um, as the Lord himself um, would reveal through his Son. We learned this even from Adam and Eve and their children. You see, if we're going to be wise, we need to understand these things that Genesis has to teach us. We need to consider these stories carefully. And though we are quote-unquote modern people, we need actually to measure ourselves against what is being revealed here in these opening pages of the Scriptures. And today we're going to focus on another significant theme of Genesis 4, which is the danger and power of sin as the Lord comes to Cain after his rejection of God by refusing to offer sacrifice, the Lord comes to him and entreats Cain to turn away from his sin. Listen now to God's word. Our sermon text is Genesis 4, 6 to 10. It's printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to reference it there. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Or, more literally, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. And we ask now that by your spirit, you would enable us to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your scripture, that we might grow in our faith, that we might grow in our wisdom, that we might more and more hold fast 
to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If we're going to be wise, biblically speaking, then we're going to need to believe that the world really is the way that God says it is. And here we have God himself speaking. And one of the things that God is saying in this passage, indeed, one of the things that God is saying all throughout the scriptures, even as we heard in our various readings earlier this morning, is that the most dangerous thing in the world is sin. Now, we worry about a lot of things, right? We spend a lot of mental energy trying to game out um, worst-case scenarios, and, and we see a lot of potential dangers, a lot of things that might hurt us, a lot of things that could go wrong. But what the Scriptures consistently are teaching us is that we should be most concerned about, most preparing for and defending ourselves against is sin. Because sin, according to the Scriptures, is the most dangerous thing in the world. Sin is more dangerous than any virus. It's more threatening to our health than any cancer diagnosis or other physical problem. Sin is more menacing to our comfort and security than unemployment or an IRS audit or losing everything we've saved over the years in some kind of financial catastrophe. Sin, in fact, is more catastrophic than a hurricane or a drought or a flood or all the pipes in our house freezing and bursting at once. Sin is a bigger problem than trade deficits or inflation or climate change or nuclear war. This is what the Bible teaches. And moreover, the Bible consistently teaches us that the sin that is most dangerous to us, that should be most concerning to us, that we should be most worried about, so to speak, in a proper way, isn't the sins that other people are committing. It's not the sin that's out there in the world somewhere. It's not the sin that might be committed against us by the wicked and powerful. No, the sin that we should be most concerned about, the sin that is most dangerous to us, is the sin that we commit or that we're tempted to commit. The sin that resides in our hearts. The sin that we might be tempted to fall into and give ourselves over to if we don't walk in repentance and holiness in the way of Jesus. I would argue that when you're younger in your faith and still early on the path toward maturity, it's pretty easy to identify all the dangerous sin that is taking place out there in others, in the world, to focus on the iniquity that you see clearly around you. That's not terribly hard. But what's much more complicated, which more harder, which is much more harder is to rightly discern what is taking place in the chambers of your own heart and to rightly understand the danger of your own particular aptitude for sin, the temptations, the desires that you have that are contrary to God. Indeed, I would argue that to grow in wisdom and maturity become, means to become more, not less aware of your own capacity for destruction and rebellion, to see more clearly your own sin and guilt before God, to learn to say wholeheartedly, without reservation, 
with one of the oldest prayers written in the English language, these words, I have left undone those things which I ought to have done, and I have done those things which I ought not to have done. And apart from thy grace, there is no health in me. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon me, a miserable offender. That's how the old prayer book puts it. And that's wisdom. And this same spirit is why Paul in 1 Timothy writes to his younger pastor protege, and he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Think of the effect of those words on Timothy as a young man still growing in the faith and maturity. Here is Paul, undoubtedly his pastoral hero, his role model, the one he is seeking to imitate. And Paul is describing himself as the foremost of sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save. Paul is speaking in this way because he has become wise. He knows intimately his own capacity for self-destruction and sin. This is why Solomon, in his wisdom, begins the book of Proverbs, as we heard earlier this morning in our Old Testament reading, with an extended warning against sin. Not an adulation of wisdom, but a warning against the power and temptation of sin. That's what his son needs to hear first. He tells his son that those who engage in sin, those who give themselves over um, to it, think that they are the ones in control. But in reality, he says... If you practice sin, you are lying in wait for your own blood. You are setting an ambush for your own life. Interestingly, before Solomon's son could even begin to comprehend biblical wisdom, he first had to reckon with the profound danger of sin. And this is why our Lord Jesus taught his disciples to grow in wisdom not primarily by identifying the sin in the world around them, but by first clearly understanding and comprehending the sin in their own hearts, instructing them with those, these words that I'm sure are familiar to you. He said, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All of these principles of biblical wisdom regarding the danger of sin and the importance of identifying our own sin are found on display in our sermon text this morning in Genesis 4. You see, after the Lord has no regard for Cain's sacrifice, he comes to this man and he confronts him. Cain is angry and the Lord comes to him with words of kindness, words of instruction, words of wisdom, if only Cain will listen. Genesis 4 reads this way in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, more literally, will not your face be lifted up? You see, the first thing to notice that what the Lord does here for Cain is he clearly lays out a way of repentance. Repentance for Cain in this passage is not complicated. If he does well, his face will be lifted up. He will be accepted by God. In this particular situation, repentance for Cain means to humble himself, to accept that he in fact does live under God's just sentence of death for his sin, and to ask Abel for a lamb, which he can now slay as a substitute for himself, thus freeing him to give openly to God an offering of the labor of the fruit of the ground. You see, repentance for Cain in this passage is not hard. It's not complicated. It's as easy as humbling himself and doing what is right. And the Lord says, if you do that, you will be accepted. Indeed, friends, repentance for any of us is never complicated. It's not. The straightforward nature of repentance is a fundamental part of the gospel. A fundamental part of God's kindness to us is that repentance is simple. It is straightforward. It's it's, it's an important thing to see and to understand and comprehend. You see, Satan wants us to believe that repentance is some gargantuan task that we can't even begin to comprehend, that it's some complicated, complicated calculus of spiritual works and making ourselves acceptable to God before um, he can receive us through our own efforts. But that's not true, friends. That is literally a lie from the pit of hell. That's false. It's a lie from hell that seeks to convince us that remaining in sin is less complicated than turning toward righteousness and embracing repentance. You see, a complicated path of repentance is not the gospel. And woe to those who put up false and unnecessary obstacles to the repentance of others who make it appear to be complicated. Sin is, uh, repentance is, is merely turning from your sin toward God and obedience and humility. And, and, and these kinds of complications that, that people can create for repentance is one of the primary complaints actually of the Protestant Reformation, which sought, among other things, to reform Rome's false doctrine of penance as though your repentance had to be this complicated work that you performed. No, repentance is just turning away from your sin, back toward God, away from our error, acknowledging our need of God's forgiveness and embracing righteousness. The first thing to see in this passage is that God offers this simple path to Cain, and it's offered to us as well, thanks be to God. For repentance, when our Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, he meant that all of our life, should be one of repentance. But along with offering a simple path of repentance, God also is warning Cain against the danger of the sin which resides in his heart. That's the second thing he's doing in this passage. The Lord goes on to say to Cain, if you do not do well, but if you continue in your hard-heartedness and your rebellion, if you do not do well, the Lord is saying, in effect, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, the image that the Lord is giving Cain here is a vivid one. It's meant to shock him. It's meant to wake him up. To refuse to repent is to make 
Cain vulnerable to the domination of sin. And in the image that the Lord paints, sin has become like a beast that is crouching at the door, that is ready to consume Cain. The parallels to Genesis 3 in the garden are obvious here, I think. Sin is being personified. It's like the serpent that invaded the garden. Sin, like the serpent, doubts the veracity of God's word. Sin promises good things. But ultimately, sin will destroy Cain if he does not put it to death first. And notice now, instead of the serpent crouching in the garden, sin is now crouching in Cain's own heart. It's fascinating to me that the Lord does not emphasize to Cain here the danger of his potential sin for others, particularly Abel, obviously. Abel's the one who will pay the price for Cain's sin. He's the one whose blood will be poured out if Cain gives himself over to sin's power. But the Lord doesn't say anything about Abel here. Rather, the Lord is pointing out to Cain the danger his sin poses to his own self. That if he is not careful, his sin will destroy him. Beloved, we have to come to realize the truth of what the Lord is speaking to Cain here. The most dangerous thing in the world for you is not the sin that's out there somewhere in someone else. It's the sin that is inside you. The sin that is in your heart that seems so attractive, so justified, but is actually crouching at the doors of your heart in order to consume and destroy you. And when your heavenly Father is warning you against the sin in your life, He's not doing it because He wants you to suffer by forcing you to give up that sinful attitude or sinful behavior that is bringing you so many good things, so many wonderful, pleasurable things. That's not what it is. Rather, he wants you to see clearly with the eyes of truth. He wants to strip away the illusions and to see your sin for what it is, the most dangerous force in your life. It's an ugly beast that wants to consume you that wants to eat you alive and destroy you. And indeed, sadly, in this story, that is just what Cain's sin does to him. He does not respond to the Lord in repentance. He does not humble himself and listen wisely to the Lord's counsel. He does not think the Lord is telling the truth about the danger of sin. And so his sin leaps and destroys him. Genesis 4 goes on to describe this in verses 8 to 10. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. The tragedy in this scene is palatable. This is the first death recorded in the scriptures, and it is a death that occurs not because of a virus, not because of a famine, not because a tree fell over and crushed someone, not because of old age, but because 
of the direct effects of human sin as Cain turns on his brother and kills him. Five times in these three verses, that word brother is repeated again and again. Brother, 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 underscoring the horror of what Cain has done. As the older brother, Cain should have watched over Abel, should have protected him and kept him safe. Instead, consumed by the beast crouching at his door, Cain entices Abel out into the field with false words and then puts him to death in a horrific way. With his own hands, he kills his brother. Later in Genesis 4, Cain's descendants will invite, well, sorry, I'm sorry, not invite, will invent wonderful things. They'll invent things like the musical instruments of the lyre and pipe. They'll, they'll come to, to see physical advances like the forging of bronze and iron. But here, all of those developments and intention and inventions are tainted by this. That before all of those things, Cain invented violence and murder and the spilling of blood. That was the first invention of the line of Cain. And arguably the most chilling thing about the story is not even the cold-blooded murder of Abel. It's the total lack of contrition or regret on Cain's part afterwards. The Lord asks Cain, he says, Where is Abel, your brother? It's very like the question. The Lord says, where are you? In the garden, to the man and the woman. And Cain does not even flinch in this moment. He doesn't even answer with a decency of being halfway honest, like Adam does, at least, in the garden, that he was afraid and he hid himself. He says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Managing both to lie as well as scorn the idea that Abel's welfare is any of his business at all. It's not my business, he says. It's not my responsibility. How should I know where my brother is when he knew very well where Abel's body was? The progression of Cain's descent into sin here is important. It develops There are stages and steps to it. We need to wisely discern these things. It begins with his pride, right? His rejection of living under God's just sentence of death. His refusal to offer a lamb as a substitute to God in his own place. And that sin of pride leads to his rejection of God's warning. He doesn't take God seriously when God warns him about the danger of his sin. When he offers him the path to repentance, he doesn't believe that what God's saying is true. And that, in turn, leads directly to murder, to the shedding of innocent blood, and then finally to hard-heartedness. Lying to God, scorning his authority completely. And as we'll see next week, even complaining to the Lord about the judgment that he received as though The judgment that he receives from the Lord is unfair, as though he, Cain, were himself somehow the victim of all of these things. Beloved, Cain's story, and particularly Cain's blindness, 
is recorded for us here as a warning. Because my sin and your sin is no less dangerous than the sin of Cain. Remember the words of the Apostle James who writes, surely I think he must have been reflecting on this story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. He says this, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when as conceived, gives birth to sin. So desire is conceived, false desire, wicked desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it becomes fully mature, fully grown, brings forth death. Death to others and death to ourselves. Implicit in the words of James and in this narrative that is recorded for us here in Genesis 4 is this fundamental assumption. And that is that all of us are in danger of taking our sin far less seriously than we should. And these texts, these stories, the words of Jesus, they're intended to shock us, to wake us up, because all of us are in danger of underestimating sin's power, underestimating the peril that sin puts us in, which is why the Lord Jesus chose his awful words with precision and care when he said, as we heard in our gospel reading this morning, and believe me, he was absolutely serious about these things. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, the Lord says, cut it off and throw it away. And he meant that. He meant it because he proves it by his argument in the next sentence. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, our Lord Jesus says, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Beloved, as we close this morning, I just want us to sit with these things for a moment. I don't want to do anything about the tension that we might be feeling about the way the scripture speaks about sin, about the way our Lord speaks about it, about the horror of this story. So we see Cain's sin growing into something and bringing forth death in his life. And I want to just ask you this question. Where are you potentially underestimating the danger of sin in your own heart? Where are you tempted to just kind of shrug your shoulders and say it's not that big of a deal? What is the sin that you have made some kind of false truce with? Where it has this corner of your life, it's not going to spread. It's just over there, it's fine. What is the sin that you may have convinced yourself is not that big of a deal, really? The sin that you have come to believe will not really destroy you, not really. It won't consume you from the inside out. Because, beloved, what the Word of God is saying to you today is that The sin in your heart is not inconsequential. It is not a neutral habit. It is a beast, an ugly beast 
a grotesque beast that is crouching at your door and wants to eat you alive. That's what it is, actually, if the illusion is taken away. But friends, the good news of the gospel is quite simple. The grace of repentance, the grace and the good news, and I mean that, the grace and the good news of repentance is available for you even this day. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came in the Gospel of Mark proclaiming the Gospel with these words. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Repentance is good news, friends, because it means that the Lord will change your life if you turn from your sin. The Lord will not scorn you. The Lord will have mercy on you. As the Lord says to Cain, he says also to you today, if you do well, that is, if you turn from your sin, if you embrace the good news, the grace of repentance, will you not be accepted? Will not your face be lifted up? Indeed, beloved, yes. Yes, your face will be lifted up. You will be accepted. For the power of your sin, however grotesque, however terrible, however horrific, is nothing compared to the power of the grace and the mercy of God. This is the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for even the gospel in this passage, Father. Will we remember and are confronted again by the horror and the danger of sin, and yet the way of repentance that is offered to us in your grace and mercy. Father, give us eyes to see our own hearts clearly. Wake us up while we're blind. Shatter our illusions, Father. And help us to run again and again to your mercy, to live lives of repentance, that each day, may be characterized by turning from our sin and unto you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.